we'll be reading 2 Corinthians chapter 11 from verse 16 to the end. I repeat, let no one think me foolish, but even if you do, accept me as a fool, so that I too may boast a little. What I am saying with this boastful confidence, I say not with the Lord's authority, but as a fool. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. For you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourselves. For you bear it if someone makes slaves of you, or devours you, or takes advantage of you, or puts on airs, or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I am speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I'm talking like a madman, with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. For a night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Aratus was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. If you would turn your Bibles back just a couple of pages to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we're looking this evening at three verses there, three verses 13 to 15. They're also printed at the top of your outline of the sermon that you're about to hear, those same verses, but they're found here in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 13, for if we are beside ourselves, it is for God, if we're in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. <coughs> Paul you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. This was the judgment of Porcius Festus, the Roman procurator of Judea. Around 59 AD, some 30 years roughly, a little bit less than the time when Jesus was alive, Festus was appointed to the same position, procurator of Judea, that Pontius Pilate occupied. On his arrival to this new posting, he found a prisoner who had languished for several years awaiting a fair trial. That was the apostle Paul. The Roman Festus actually couldn't understand the Jewish charges against Paul, so when the half-caste Jewish king, Agrippa, Herod Agrippa, came for a kind of royal visit, Festus organized to have Paul explain himself in front of King Agrippa. It was as Festus heard Paul saying about all the nations being enlightened by this Jewish man, Jesus, who had risen from the dead, that he burst forth in this loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. Festus wasn't the only one 
to think that Paul was a bit mad. Uh, it appears to be the judgment of his opponents as well. For when he was writing to the Christians in Corinth, Paul defends himself against this accusation, saying in the text at the top of your outline or in the Bible passage I just read, for if we are beside ourselves, well, it's for God. If we're in our right mind, it's for you. And clearly people thought that this man, this missionary apostle, was mad, beside himself, not in his right mind. Our world today doesn't like extremists. And Paul certainly sounded like an extremist. On every standard of normality, you'd have to say that Paul was an extremist who lived a very mad life. And when you hear our second lesson from 2 Corinthians chapter 11, all the trials, all the tribulations that he went through, you'd have to say, please don't let my children become a missionary. You'd have to say, that is a career profile that I wouldn't like to have. It's one mad lifestyle. Beatings, bashings, whippings, torture, shipwreck, imprisonment, dangers on all fronts. <clears throat> if that's normal living, I'm glad I'm not doing it because this is not normal. This is extreme. But, but hold on a minute. Before you write off all extremists, just remember that nearly every great person of history was an extremist. Martin Luther King, Mother Teresa, William Wilberforce. The list can go on and on as we account extremists who change the world for the better. Oh, sure, there are extremists who change the world for the worse as well, aren't there? Uh, Hitler and Stalin and Pol Pot and Jim Jones. The issue is not whether you're an extremist or not. The issue is what you're an extremist about. Don't write people off just because they're extremists. It's what they are trying to do that matters. Now, in our text printed at the top of the outline, we read the two justifications that Paul gives. If he's mad, he says, if I'm beside myself, it's for God. If, on the other hand, I'm in my right mind, it's for you. Being mad for God is not something that he's commending or even believing is true necessarily, but he is doing what God told him to do. And if this means that the world views him as mad, well, so be it. The world thinks I'm mad, but I'm doing what God told me to do. Far better to be thought mad in a mad world and do the will of God than to be thought sane in a mad world and live in rebellious willfulness against God. <laughs> Clearly, Paul thought that he was in the right, his right mind. And if he was in his right mind, he gives his second justification. That is, I'm doing it for you. That's what he tells the Christians in Corinth. For all this suffering, the beatings, the, the shipwrecks, the lifestyle of danger, the hard work, the sacrifice was done for them. It was an expression of his unselfish love for them. He was laying down his life for them. But how can living like that be seen as being in your right mind? I mean, to lay down your life for others still seems pretty mad. Isn't looking after yourself the rational choice, the sane choice in life? I mean, that's the opinion of some atheists like, say, Ayn Rand and her ethical egoism. If everybody just looked after themselves, society would work very well. That's the philosophy of one great famous atheist of the 20th century. And anyway, if you're going to be charitable to other people, isn't the voice of the world that charity begins at home? Doesn't charity start and, 
and also finished in your own wallet, looking after your own family and your own self. I mean, if everybody looked after their own family and their own self, we wouldn't need most of the other charities that are around. What could ever turn this educated first century Jewish scholar Saul of Tarsus, into the self-sacrificing, adventurous apostle of suffering. Why would he lay down his life for other people? Why would he consider that a rational choice to spend my life given over to other people? Because, he said, because he was controlled by love. See his answer in the next part of this evening's text. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we're in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us. There is a sense in which his actions were controlled. He felt compelled, constrained, hedged in. It wasn't something over which he had a sense of real freedom. It wasn't something that he could take it or leave it. There was something that was hedging him in and controlling him, something that was keeping him straightened until he completed it. He was forced to do this. And what is it that controlled him like this? He said it was the love of Christ. For if we're in our right mind, it is for you, for the love of Christ controls us. There was something about the love of Christ which compelled him so that he could do no other. He had to act because of this love of Christ. It's not his love for Christ, though I'm sure he did love Christ, but it's Christ's love for him. Christ's love for him was compelling him to live a life that the world would say is crazy. Do you know that love of Christ? Do you know Christ's love for you in such a way that it compels you to actions that the world would think are slightly mad, but you know are right because Christ's love requires it of you? Do you know Christ's love in your life? Are you aware of that love that Christ has for you? I mean, what is this love of Christ that can get people to do such extraordinary things? For Paul was not alone. He was one of thousands of people whose lives have been marked out by the extraordinary exploits that the world at the time thought was mad. From Lord Shaftesbury camp campaigning here in this great city for the poor, or Wilberforce campaigning for uh, the slaves and against the slave traffic, or Livingston going out, Dr. Livingston going out into Africa to explore and to find and to help, or Florence Nightingale in the Crimea in creating the whole nursing industry, or Gladys Aylwood in, in China. I mean, the list just goes on and on of great people who would tell you what Paul is telling you, that it was the love of Christ that controlled me to do what the world thought was mad at the time. I mean, there's Richard Johnson. That's not a name that you know very well, is it? Who was he? Well, he was a Yorkshireman who was studying in Cambridge at the time, preparing for the comfortable living as a parish rector in Georgian England, when he chose to leave it all behind, to become the first prison chaplain in, a, in an open prison surrounded by convicts, no bars, just living there amongst the convicts as the prisoner in a colony at the very end of the earth called Botany Bay. Sydney, in case you didn't know. Now, that's a mad choice, isn't it? A crazy career move, if ever there was. I mean, the soldiers, they had to go. The sailors, they had to go. 
The convicts, they certainly had to go. He chose to go. He didn't have to go. Why would you choose to go where no one else wanted to go? But they were forced to go. Why would you choose that? He would tell you the love of Christ controlled him to do that which the world would say is madness itself. And it's just not people in the past. Motivated by Christ's love to give extraordinary service to others. It's happening in the future. I could fill this evening with story after story of men and women who have left the comfortable prosperity of a professional career because they discovered the compelling love of Christ. I have two of my friends who are lawyers, a couple both with their law degrees. In other words, the capacity for writing a comfortable living for the rest of their lives. They left it all to preach Christ to students overseas, raising their family in a small unit, living without a car in a foreign country, learning a foreign language in order to be able to serve other people. Or the two doctors I know who married and moved away from that career, which in Australia is just the career to print as much money as you want. And they gave up medicine in Australia to proclaim Christ in Japan, a country that didn't need doctors, so they gave up doctoring just to spend their time telling students about the Lord Jesus Christ in a country that needed the Saviour. So what is this love of Christ that so motivates people to live so differently. Paul explains it in terms of what he has concluded. Look again with me. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this. The love of Christ is not anti-intellectual. It's not fundamentally your feeling. It's, it's not insanity. It's not irrational. It's not even irrational. It's something that we can think about. It's something we can actually know and conclude. It's something that having thought through it, Paul came to his Conclusion. The very word is the word of the logical discovery and conclusion of the persuasion that has come upon him. Paul was persuaded that many people have come to this same intellectual conclusion, persuaded by the evidence. It was, it was a judgment that he made, having thought about it. It's a deep, deep conviction that he had concluded. It's the conviction that one has died for all and therefore all have died. You see it there in our text. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. That's slightly strange, that bit, isn't it? Let's take those ideas one at a time so that we can understand this love of Christ that so motivates people. He concluded that one has died. I mean, here's the just sheer brute facts. Very hard to deny, Jesus died by crucifixion under Pontius Pilate. Only some Muslims reject this as a fact, for the Quran apparently denies that Jesus died. They see that Jesus was not crucified, it just appeared that he was. Both Islam and Christianity cannot be true. If Islam is true, Christianity is not. If Christianity is true, Islam's not. Possibly, if Jesus didn't live, both are wrong. But whatever else, they can't both be right. Which means those people who think all religions are right are definitely wrong. Because these two both can't be right, can they? For Jesus either did or didn't die on the cross. They can't have it both ways. Facts are facts. 
So what about you? Are you convinced that Jesus did die? The evidence seems overwhelming. All of the early Christians and non-Christian sources recount his death. Josephus, the Jewish historian, Tacitus, the Roman historian, they tell us that Jesus was crucified under Pontius Pilate. The New Testament, in page after page, tells us about the death of the Lord Jesus Christ and the crucifixion of Jesus. In fact, if you took out all the references to the Jesus' death in the New Testament, you'd have confetti left. For the New Testament has one message over and over again, is the death of Jesus. So what about you? Are you persuaded that Jesus died? That's the first part of the conclusion, that one died. Secondly, Paul concluded that Jesus died for all. Now, that's a different kind of conclusion. This is not the brute fact of death, but the reason and the interpretation of the death. Why did he die? It wasn't because of cancer. It wasn't because he had a car accident nor that he got caught up in the political machinations of first century Roman rule in Palestine, Paul concluded that Jesus died for us. That is, he laid down his life voluntarily for us. It wasn't taken from him. He died for us. It was given by him. He concluded, I mean, he could have fled, couldn't he? He could have stayed away from Jerusalem. He could have retired into the desert. He could have given up preaching. But no, he set his face resolutely to go to that great city that he knew was going to assassinate and execute him. He gave his life and he gave his life, we're told, for us. How, how do you die for someone? What does it mean he died for us? He died on our behalf as our representative. He died in our place as our substitute. We understand representative and substitute, don't we? We see it in football or in most sports these days. You know, you cheer for your team. Why do you cheer for your team? Because they represent you. When England goes to play, if you're English, you cheer for England. And if you're anything else, you cheer for the other side. <laughs> but they are your representatives. When they are playing, you are playing. Your, their goals are your goals because they're our goals, because they're our representatives. But there's that other thing that happens, isn't it? When number six gets injured or isn't doing too well and the, the coach moves him out and pulls the man from the bench to take his place. That is a substitute. That is someone who's playing in the place of. Jesus is the one who dies for us as our representative and in our place as our substitute. He dies for us. Paul writes much of the New Testament and in his writings he explains it. First, he tells us that the wage that sin pays is death. Jesus didn't sin, so he didn't deserve the wage of death. But he died. We deserve to die because we've all sinned. We've all rebelled against God. We all ignore God and turn our back on him and choose to live our own lives, our own ways, doing just what we want rather than living for the one who's made us and owns us and rules the universe. I mean, to turn your back on God is pretty dumb, isn't it? To turn your back on a friend is rude. To turn your back on the person who has power over you is silly. To turn your back on God, like I say, it's dumb. But yet we all do it. We all think we know better than God. We can live our own lives our own way. We can make up the rules for ourselves. But Jesus didn't. He didn't sin. And so he didn't deserve to die. But Paul concludes that Jesus, who didn't deserve to die, died. But he died not his own death, but our death. 
as the representative of humanity and as the substitute for us. And so the third part of the conclusion, the, the kind of conclusion of the conclusion, he says, therefore, all have died. I mean, if he died my death for me, then I've already died. My penalty has already been paid for. My death has already happened. In his death, I died so that I no longer have to die as a penalty for sin because the penalty has been paid. This last conclusion pushes the logic all the way. If Jesus died for our sins, then we died in his death at Calvary nearly 2,000 years ago. I'm no longer then guilty in the presence of God. I'm forgiven. I, I'm, I'm redeemed. I'm, I'm bought with the price of his only son. I'm pardoned. But why? <laughs> why would Jesus do such a thing? Why would you lay down your life for another person? Especially another person who doesn't want to have anything to do with you. Another person who rejects you. Why would you do such a thing? Simply the answer here is because he loved me. That's why. He loved me and wanted to spare me from the death I deserve. This is the love of Christ Jesus that he's writing about. This is the love of Christ for me. This is the love of Christ that controls and constrains our very actions. This is the love of Christ Jesus that he would voluntarily give up his life, not give up his life for me, his enemy, that I may have not the death I deserve, but eternal life that he has won for me. And so Paul explains this new life that he's won for me, the new life of the Christian, in the last sentence there, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. We no longer are to live for ourselves, but for him. For Jesus didn't remain dead, he rose to new life. He rose to rule the world as the King of kings and Lord of lords, the judge of the living and the dead. We can no longer go on living the old life that we used to live. The old life the where we live for ourselves, the old life that led to the death, to the death of God, to Jesus' death the life of rebellion against God that caused his death. We can't go on living that way anymore now that we know him who loved us so much as to die for us. Now that we live the new life, the life of living for our Saviour and our Lord, our Saviour because he died for us, our Lord because he's risen to, to sit in heaven, I now have something actually someone to live for, something, someone who is bigger, greater, wonderful, more magnificent, more worthy than myself. <laughs> who do you live for? Yourself? Is that who you live for? Excuse me pointing this out to you, but just, yeah, someone needs to tell you the truth. If you're living for yourself, you're a very selfish person. Self-centeredness is the inevitable outcome of that, isn't it? But of course, who else is there to live for other than yourself? This is where the atheist will tell you to go live for yourself. And you live in a society where everybody lives for themselves. You live in a society that is called... England. Why do you think the problems are of self-centeredness that rules this country if it's not a whole host of people who's got nothing in their life more important than themselves? Or do you live for a what, not a who? What is it that you live for? 
Because whatever you live for is less than human, isn't it? For the greatest things in this world are human. So whatever you're living for, now that you're not living for yourself, but living for a what, you're living for something less than yourself. You thought this was a better idea? It's actually a worse idea, isn't it? What are you going to live for? Your possessions? Your career? Your travel? You've got to go overseas for your holidays, for your pleasure, for your fame? To tick off your bucket list of the 50 things you've got to do before you die? My friends, when you live for a what, then you are in slavery and addiction, in bondage to things that are less than yourself. But what else is there to live for? Who else is there to live for? Understanding Jesus and his love for us means that his death is our sanity. It's not madness. It's true sanity. For now, I know I'm forgiven. I don't have to pretend that I'm not wicked, evil, corrupt and sinful. I can tell you the truth. I'm a rotten man. I don't have to pretend I'm good and moral. I'm not good and moral. I've done bad things. And I continue to do bad things. I have a natural tendency to evil. I fail to do the good that I should and I keep doing the bad things that I shouldn't do. I can face the reality of who I am. I can look in the mirror and face the truth. I don't have to pretend because my life is not built on my morality. My life is built on forgiveness. I'm forgiven. Doesn't make it right what I've done. Doesn't mean I should go on doing what I've done, but it does mean I've got a complete new start. I'm forgiven and I know I'm forgiven. And now my life and eternity are certain. And so I can now relate to God, not in terror and fear, such that I can't even acknowledge his presence because it is so terrifying. I can now relate to God as my loving father who cares for me and loves me, provides for me and protects me, will look after me because I now relate out of forgiveness that his son has won for me by his death on my behalf. And now the punishment has been paid. I'm free. I don't live because there's a whip behind me and a carrot in front of me. The whip has already been lashed on Jesus. That's over. And the carrot is already in my hand and halfway down my mouth. I'm free now to live, to live for God, free to serve him and his world, free to lay down my life for the salvation of other people, free to live no longer for my terrible, tyrannical self, I'm now free to live for him. And living for him means living for other people. It changes and transforms everything. This, this my friends, is the, is the sense of being loved that people in our world today are longing for. So many people are longing for it. So many of our teenagers today are longing to find love. And it's so hard to find in a world where everybody lives for themselves and is taught to live for themselves, to look after themselves. But here is love, the love that declares that we matter. We matter so much, we matter to God, that we are safe. We are safe and secure, safe even against that terrible enemy of death. It gives a sense of significance and security that means we can build our lives positively. But it also means we can do things and we will do things that the world considers mad. We give up our career to go on the mission field. We volunteer our time and our effort and our money for other people's benefits. We stick out a hard and unloving marriage because we made promises. We raise our children to honour and serve God rather than to get their A-levels at the right level to get to the right university to be able to get onto the, onto the escalator that will take them to the top of their career and provide for us in our old age. See, we now live for Christ. 
For him who died for us and was raised again. And once you live for him who loved us and gave his life for us, we now give our lives for other people. It's not because we're mad. It's because with Paul, we've come to the rational conclusions of sanity itself. The conclusion that one has died for all and therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. This is a complete turnabout. I used to live this way, I'm now living that way because of the love of Christ. Do you know this love of Christ? Do you know this transformation, this change? Down the bottom of the sheet, you'll see there is a little prayer. It's the turnaround prayer. It's the prayer of sanity. It's the prayer that turns the madness of this world into the sanity of the kingdom of God. You see, three paragraphs to it. I'm going to pray it in a moment or two, but let me take you through it so you know what it is I'm asking you to pray with me. The first paragraph is the madness. I know I'm not worthy to be accepted by you, God. I don't deserve your gift of eternal life because I'm guilty of rebelling against you and ignoring you. I need forgiveness. Do you need forgiveness? If you don't know that about yourself, you really know nothing. We all need forgiveness. And so it's just, it's just about the truth. Notice every sentence there starts with the word I. It's all about me. And when it's all about me, I need forgiveness. Second paragraph's thanking God for what he has done. Thanking you for sending your son to die for me that I may be forgiven. Thank you that he raised him to life again so that I might have a new life. That's the wonderful news of the gospel of Jesus, isn't it? And so the third paragraph is the prayer of the prayer. Please forgive me. Hey, first paragraph, I need forgiveness. Second paragraph, Jesus died so that I'll be forgiven. The obvious, therefore, is please forgive me. And change me. And I may no longer live for myself, but for him who died for me and was raised again. So please change me that I may live with Jesus. Not just as my saviour, but as my Lord. This is the turnaround prayer that every person who becomes a Christian prays. Or a prayer like this. These are the concepts, the fundamental concepts of turning our life into the kingdom of heaven. So I don't know why you've come to church tonight. I don't know why God has brought you along. I don't know whether these ideas are new to you or old to you. But I'm going to lead in this prayer now and I'm going to ask you to pray it with me in the quietness of your own mind. You may like to say the Amen out loud if you agree with it. Those of us who are Christians, we can pray this prayer every day of the week. But if you want to actually turn your life around, this is where it starts. With God. Thanking him for his son's death on your behalf and resurrection and asking him to forgive you in the name of Jesus and to change you to live for him who died for you and was raised again, Jesus, as your Lord. So let's pray. Dear God, I know that I'm not worthy to be accepted by you. I don't deserve your gift of eternal life. I am guilty of rebelling against you and ignoring you. I need forgiveness. Thank you for sending your son to die for me that I may be forgiven. Thank you that he rose from the dead to give me new life. Please forgive me 
and change me that I may live with Jesus as my Lord. Amen. And friend, if this is your prayer, especially if this is your prayer for the first time, let me assure you, absolutely, on the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be forgiven. God sent his son and Jesus took up the challenge and died so that you'll be forgiven. You can't get a better assurance guarantee than that. You will be forgiven. And Jesus is not dead. He's risen from the dead. He is the Lord who changes people by his spirit so you will be changed. This is the prayer that you can know will be answered yes. But if that's your prayer, and especially if it's new for you, do make sure you talk to someone about it. <laughs> because it's a big change to be heading one way in your life. Now you're heading the new way. We call it being born again, actually. It's such a big change. And you'll need every help you can get in the early steps of a new life. So say to a friend, a Christian friend, or one of the staff who are here, say, look, I prayed that prayer. What do I do next? Very simple. That's all you need to say. And we'll be only too happy to help you. First of all, a couple of clarification questions, Philip. If I am going to die anyway, which we're all going to die, in what sense has Jesus died in my place? Well, you're dead already anyway. Because uh, the day that Adam ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you already died then, in one sense. Uh, death is just the normality of our life. But Jesus took our death so that we will now come to a new life. We are born again. So death is the normality of your existence. A new birth is what is required. Because he died our death, therefore we now can have a new birth because the death is paid for. Does that answer that question? Yes, thank you. How did Jesus die as our representative? Another clarification one. What's the difference between our being, being our substitute and our representative? Could you just go over that again for well, us? Well, it's, it's both ends. It's not either or. Uh, he was humanity dying for humanity as our representative. And he was individually our substitute. He actually took the name of Philip Jensen and the sins of Philip Jensen in his death. So he substituted for my death when he died as the representative of the new humanity. Adam was our representative who took us all into sin Jesus is the representative who pays the penalty for the sins of the whole world. And could you explain why it is that living for oneself and being selfish is such a disaster? Uh, well, describe your perfect flatmate, and I guarantee it won't be someone who's selfish and lives for themselves. It is profoundly antisocial to live for yourself. But it is also irrational and, and, and silly because uh, you, you haven't made yourself, you are not God. You are made by God. And because you are made by God, you should be living for the one who made you rather than living for yourself. It's just not a realistic way of life. And so it's a rejection of God when you say, well, I don't care about what he wants for me. I'm going to live my life my way. See, objects do not have, and accidents do not have any meaning. They happen because they happen because they happen. And so you get an object, it is meaningless. The meaning anything has is because somebody has created it, made it, or because somebody owns it and gives it the meaning. Now, you can't move philosophically from is to ought. Uh, this is a Bible, therefore I ought to burn it, to read it, to use it as a frisbee, to put it down. I mean, there's not, it doesn't tell you what you ought. Once you've said something is, it doesn't tell you anything. Now, if all you are is an is, an accident, then you have no meaning. And if you have no meaning, there is no morality. Do what you like. And what you like will be doing your own thing. And that'll make you a very unpleasant person to live with. But that's the alternative that atheism gives you. That's the alternative. But once you understand you've been made by God for his purpose, 
well then you need to live for him and his purpose for which he has made you. Because any other living is inauthentic, is not true to you as a creature. You know, you, you make a motor car in order to drive it and take people somewhere. You don't make a motor car so as to play cricket. I mean, you can play cricket with a motor car, but it's not very good as a bat. It's hopeless as a ball. And you could use it as a wicket, but I'd prefer to bowl rather than bat to protect a motor car if that's my wicket. I mean, it's a daft instrument for playing cricket. It hasn't been made for that purpose. You have been made for God. Why are you living for yourself? So that's the problem. So then what would you, how would you respond to the atheist who says, I don't believe in God. I'm not living for myself. I'm living to help others. Well, bully for you. Why are you doing that? Because it's totally irrational. But then again, that's pretty normal for an atheist. <laughs> the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Why, what does, I think this is an excellent question here. What does living after saying the turnaround prayer look like? Or what should it look like? It's just different. And one of the problems in that question is, it's in a sense different for everybody while being the same for everybody. <laughs> Where you come from, what you are, who you are, what you're doing. It's just that kind of unpredictable. So a lovely Christian girl, a lovely atheist girl become a Christian. Uh, she, she lived in one of the most decadent, corrupt colleges of one of our universities, and she became a Christian, absolutely lovely girl. And so as she became a Christian, I said, well, what are the changes that need to be worked in here? She said, oh, life has changed completely for me. Everything's different. And I thought, well, what? I said, uh, men? She said, oh, no, I've never had any boyfriends. No, that's no different. I said, well, drugs? No, she said, I don't take drugs. And I said, well, drink? Because everyone that college, that was, that was drinkers galore, you know, that really is an awful college. And she says, no, I don't drink. So I said, well, what's changed? She said, well, everything. She said, I used to study for myself to get big marks, to beat other people, to become... She said, I don't do that anymore. I study because I want to. I'm just enjoying it. I'm just learning. The whole reason I'm at university is different. The way I treat everybody is different. The way I have friends, everything is different. <laughs> See, here's someone who externally, morally, had the morals of a Christian without being a Christian, but yet still, when she became a Christian, everything about how she did, why she did, what she did, she knew was a completely different person. So... How is it different for you? Yes, lots of people have given up their, their, their careers in order to go preach the gospel. See, to those who are given much, much is required. If you live in Britain today, you've been given much, much will be required. We have privileges and opportunities. We have education. We have money. We have good, uh, a, a good passport, etc. to be able to help many, many millions of people who are in dire need around this world. Because you're a Christian, you no longer live for yourself, you live for others. There are others in need. That will motivate you to make different decisions. Instead of doing your job, you see, why do we, what is the aim of work? The aim of work is to be a responsible citizen, to pay for your, your family and yourself, and the aim of work is to love your neighbour. That's the aim. Because there's a bloke out there fixing the electricity, we all have electricity enough. Because someone's fixing the drains, we all have good sewerage operating enough. Because there's somebody else who's driving the bus, we can get to and from. Everybody's job is to love their neighbour and to help their neighbour. But most people, middle class people, they, they're actually working to find their identity, their fulfilment, their satisfaction. They're in a career frame of mind, to, to be somebody, to make a difference, to, to grow, to develop and to make a lot of money en route and all those issues, all those reasons for work are crummy, self-centred nonsense. You do an honest day's labour to help your neighbour. That's what you do. And you get paid for it just as you pay your neighbour. And so it's a wonderful thing to do. It changes your view of work dramatically and radically. Because you now, party, you know, the office politics is nonsense. You don't do that anymore. You be the person who makes peace in the office, who loves the other workers, who's, who goes to work to help your fellow workers, 
rather than to score points off them and to climb over them and you're clanging up the ladder. It's the whole mindset of life changes. But if you ask me the details, well, the details are different for every person. It's the same, but it's different. Yeah, thank you very much. Philip, presumably you reached this conclusion yourself too. Can you tell us about the process? My process of reaching these conclusions? Yes, yes. Oh, yeah, but it's a waste of time hearing about me. <laughs> well, okay, you hear about me. I, I tell you, I mean, there's nothing to be ashamed or embarrassed about. Well, there's loads to be embarrassed about, but I'm not. But, but it tells you about me. What about you? Huh? I mean, I grew up in a day and age when everyone went to Sunday school. Everyone, not just the children of, of, of churchgoers. The whole community went to Sunday school. And so when I went to Sunday school, I was taught the Bible and I was taught about the gospel. But I thought I was a Christian because my suburb that I grew up in was the Jewish part of Sydney. And I knew I wasn't Jewish, therefore I had to be Christian. Then one day I was taken along to a Billy Graham crusade and I was told that you had to become a Christian. So I looked around for all the Jews to see them become Christian. And I knew there were no Jews there because I knew all the Jews of Sydney. And they weren't out of this crusade. So I suddenly thought, actually, he's saying that I have to become a Christian. So I did. And uh, that was, I was, what, 13 years old, that it was way back in 1959, and then I started finding out what the Bible actually said. Because I was in a really good Sunday school, children's program, and youth fellowship, they taught me the Bible really, really well. And then suddenly, I understood what it was about. We were singing all these songs. You know, we sang great songs tonight, but they're just words. But no, they weren't just words. They actually, I now get what it's about. And so all these children's songs that I had learnt and I would sing off by heart, ah, oh, yeah, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Jesus loves me, the Bible tells me so. And it's not try, but trust. It's not what they do. So turn your eyes upon Jesus. There was just song after song suddenly made sense to me. And then I had the great mercy and benefit of a really good theological education when I was a young man that taught me how to read the Bible properly. So day by day, how can we keep being controlled by the love of Christ? And what should we do as Christians if we find the love of Christ no longer controls us? Well, day by day is because we keep reading the Bible. You need to keep the Bible open. You need to keep reading it and keep reflecting on it. Week by week, you need to come to fellowship with other Christians who will keep you. Because where is the love of Jesus? It it's in the conclusion he has from the evidences and facts and interpretation. See, he has concluded that Jesus loved him and died for him. So if you stop reading your Bible and stop meeting in fellowship with other Christians and never hear about it, well, it will recede from your mind. That's why you need to keep on hearing and singing and reading and joining in fellowship with others about, the death, about the, 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 the death and resurrection of Jesus, to keep your eyes fixed onto the eternity that uh, we are heading to. That's what our fellowship is about. And so, but it's more than that. You've got to put it into action. Okay, I conclude Jesus died for me, and therefore I no longer live for myself, but for him who died for me and rose again, and I never do anything about it. Well, I won't remember that he died for me. If you're not an active reader of the Bible, a passive reader of the Bible, you will never remember what you've read. It's when you put it into action that you keep reminding yourself of the love of God. And so the second half of the question, I can't remember. Yes, I've scrubbed it from the thing, okay. so I can't remember it either. But uh, <laughs> it, it, was, it was a great answer. It was keeping doing it. I think you answered both sides, okay. of, both sides of the question. Thank you very much. It was a question about how to remember, was it? Yeah. I, 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 this is an excellent question, and I'll try and remember both bits of it. I believe these verses. I just don't feel this love. Yes. Am I doing something wrong? I've prayed and prayed and asked God to be changed by him and get closer to him, but I feel no closer to him. Yeah. No, you're not doing anything wrong other than placing feeling in the wrong category of importance. You see, some of us are real feeling people. I am one of them. Some of us are not feeling people. You may be one of them. That's just who we are as people. That's just our makeup as people. But, you know, some of us, men tend to feel good or bad. You know, that's the range of the emotions available to them, right? <laughs> But there are, it's like, you know, when you say to a man, you know, have, 
that, that jumper looks like teal, you've just said absolutely nothing. He has no idea what that means because men have a colour blindness that women don't have. And so you can see colour shade differences, my sisters, that frankly, they're there. I know they're there because you're not liars, not because I see them. And so you can have a range of emotions that uh, another person beside you just doesn't have. When you have love as a primary emotion, you're not talking about the same thing Paul is talking about. That's why I emphasise the fact of what Paul said, that I have concluded, it's a thought process, he has worked out that Jesus' death, given the Old Testament, given what the Bible says, given what Jesus taught, that Jesus' death was a death for me. And so I have concluded, I'm convinced, that he loved me. I may feel it, I may not feel it. Sometimes my feeling is really hanging on whether I ate pizza last night or not. Right? It, it's, and if you feel it, well, good for you. Isn't that marvellous? I'm so glad. But don't force your feelings on other people because they'll feel differently or not at all. And secondly, don't conclude by your feelings. Remember, you've got to know and understand, not just feel. Now, is, am I saying that feelings are bad? No. Uh, if you're as emotional as me, feelings are terrific. I think it's marvellous. I think it's wonderful. I feel sorry for some of my brothers who just don't get it. You know. Okay, well, look, there's a question here about maroon jumpers, but you and I don't understand that, so that's fine. No. <laughs> okay, fine. Good. So then, um, one of the big applications, what, what does living for Jesus rather than myself look like in terms of a busy secular job? Is ambition to pursue my career contrary to this? Yes. Why? Because you've got jobs, you've got careers, you've got hobbies, and they're all paid for by different people. Jobs is when you just go and love your neighbour by doing the job you're supposed to do. And all Christians should do the jobs. We should all pay participants in the welfare of society by doing our share. In, so we don't live in subsistence farming. We, we live in a, in a complex society of interrelationship and independence. I'll teach your children while, while you look after my garden. Right? And so we, we should do a job and, and make our contribution to society and love our neighbour that way. Career, though, is about me climbing the ladder of success, of me rising up to be a person of prominence and significance, of me. And so the job that I do, I'll just change job from job to job as I just get to myself to be the CEO and then to be up to be the manager director. Nothing wrong with being a CEO, nothing wrong with being a manager director, but when we set our hearts and our ambitions, our life is, that's what it's about, we've actually misunderstood the nature of work. And we put ourselves, again, as being significantly the important person for whom we're living. And generally, we discover from psychology studies that people who pursue careers are the unhappiest people in the workforce. Whereas people who do a job and go home at the end of their shift and enjoy life are happier. The happiest people of all are people who get paid for their hobbies. Because they do it anyway. You know, the drummer will drum whether the drummer is paid for or not. And the musicians, a different group of people, they will get, they will... <laughs> it's, it's like those two forms of music, you know, country and western. Uh, and, and they will play the music, whether they're paid for or not, because it's their hobby. The footballer will be... He'll play football whether he's paid or not. So therefore, when he's paid, he is the happiest of all people uh, in the work situation that they're in. I've got two... Quick questions to finish with. Um, the questions are always quick. It's the answers that yeah. are long. Yeah. <laughs> well, I wonder if, how quickly you can answer this one. Did well, each God, time I go for quick questions, you're not happy. Did God die for all humanity or only those who believe in him? Yes. <laughs> and I wonder if we've just got time for a slight expansion. <laughs> <laughs> He's the representative for all humanity and the substitute of those who put their faith and trust in him. Thank you. And do you want to go just a little bit further than that? <laughs> Jesus' death is sufficient for all. It is effective for those who have their faith in him. He paid the penalty for us. But if we reject the penalty he paid for us, we're on our own. And we stand before God under his judgment because we rejected 
the judgment of God. In fact, it heightens our condemnation when you think about it. I'm condemned because I'm sinful. And what's more, when God provided an alternative to save me, I rejected that as well. And so it actually heightens my condemnation. And so Jesus' death is, su is sufficient for all people. But the only people who will turn and receive that death of Jesus are the elect. And they will put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and receive the gift that God gives freely to all people in the death of Jesus. Yeah, terrific. Last one. If someone earnestly prays the prayer we just prayed, how can they be confident that they will make it to the end of their life still trusting Jesus or to the return of Christ? Yes, the, the question uh, reveals the problem that you have. That is, how can you be confident that you will make it to the end trusting Jesus? Those two things are contradictory. You will not make it to the end. Jesus will get you to the end. If you trust Jesus, you trust he will get you to the end. Whereas if you don't trust Jesus, you have to make it to the end. Hear the difference? And so we've got this little contradiction in the very nature of the question itself. I know that on the last day I will stand before God, redeemed and saved in the Lord Jesus Christ, because I know in whom I have trusted, and that he is able to save that under the last day. 